picking up right here, it is going to require us to do a little bit of reviewing uh, so we can kind of catch up uh, with where we've been. Also, I want to mention that uh, uh, one of the objectives in our teaching of the, of, of the book of Genesis has to do with dealing very directly with and uh, specifically with the uh, uh, chapters 1 through 11. Of course, we're going to go on after that as well, but uh, primarily we want to uh, dig deep into these 11 chapters because uh, these are the most attacked chapters in the Bible, attacked by... uh, Certainly the secular world, uh, evolutionists, scientists of every ilk and all. Um, And it is questioned by liberal theologians even in the church. So we we need to develop and, and strengthen our understanding of God's word. If we trust the first four words of the Bible as we began last year, in the beginning God, If we believe those four words, then we can believe everything that follows it in the scriptures. And that is our our goal. That is our desire. So we're going to continue on here in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, we're going to read the first five verses to get into our study now. And uh, focus our attention actually on the first two verses. Now, I didn't say this last night, but I said this uh, in the last service. I'm going to throw a lot of bones out to you. But we're going to put the meat on those bones next week, in the, in the next couple of weeks. So uh, the whole idea is I need you to come back next week, okay? So, <laughs> so you know, you're, and I had, I, told, I had a lot of people tell me as they were going out, they said, I need to come back, you know, because you, you got us thinking. I said, well, good. That's the whole idea. So anyway, verses 1 through 5 is our text. We'll pray here in just a moment. Genesis 6, verse 1 says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Shall we pray? Father, it is our desire to understand your word. And we've taken this time, Lord God, to set aside this particular passage of Scripture in chapter 6 of Genesis. And we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit because we, by your Spirit, can only understand, Lord, what these things say to our hearts. It is important, Lord God, that we understand them so that we can have an answer to every man that asks of the hope that lies within us. So we ask that you would strengthen our understanding of your word today. Help us to realize that sometimes we've kind of been uh, standing upon things that we've been taught in the past, and, and those things may be challenged today. 
Help us, Lord God, to examine, to investigate, to hear a matter before we speak on it. And then, Lord God, allow us to realize the wonders of your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A preacher ending his sermon announced that he would preach on Noah and his ark on the following Sunday, and he gave the scriptural reference for the congregation to read ahead of time. Now, a couple of mean boys noticed something interesting about the placement of the story of the flood in the Bible. And so they slipped into the church when no one was there, and they glued two pages of the pulpit Bible together, the very Bible that the preacher would read from the next day. On the next Sunday, the preacher got up to read his text, and he said, Noah took unto himself a wife, he began, and she was, and he turned the page to continue, she was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, he paused, and he kind of scratched his head, and he, and he turned the page back, and he read it silently. Turn the page. And then he looked up at his congregation and he said, You know, I've, I've been reading this old Bible for nigh on to 50 years, but there are just some things in it that are hard to believe. <laughs> well, I hope that over the next few weeks that you'll find that the story of Noah is not one of those hard to believe things. By the way, if you've been doing your reading in Genesis in the month of January, as we encourage you to do, you might have heard that uh, what I said from the story that I told wasn't really accurate. Because you see, uh, Noah never took for himself a wife that we read in those words. It just says that he bore his three sons. How many of you caught that? Okay, this is, is this 9 o'clock service or this 11? I'm not sure. Okay. Oh, I caught you. Okay. I had a few people that said they, caught, they, they got it, so I'm praying that they're not liars. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> All right. So anyway, we're going to be considering now, and this is serious, we're going to be considering what some people believe to be some of the most difficult Bible passages to interpret and to understand here at the very onset of chapter 6. And already we've had to deal with the ages of the generations from Adam to Noah, as we did in chapter 5. That was pretty, pretty tough to understand. I mean, because when you're thinking about people living seven, eight, nine hundred years, we have to deal with, with how that could be. From the scriptures, we realize that it was, it was possible that extreme lifespan that people lived before the flood. By the way, based on the ages given in chapter 5, the average man lived to be 912 years old. So it seems to me that that would lead to a population explosion, and as we've learned, it really did. And if we assume that the average time between generations, let's say, was 94 years, and the average family size was 8 children, and again, these are assumptions, of course, and the average age was only 500 years old, If we went with those particular figures at that rate at the time of Noah's flood, 
there would have been 137 billion people living on the earth. Now, I'm not saying that there were that many people because, you know, when you think about it, there's only 7 billion people on the earth today. So I'm not saying that there were that many people, but that's where the numbers would lead you. But if we take the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, 24, verse 37, and by the way, this is going to be a very key verse for the next few weeks in our study of Genesis chapter 6, Matthew 24, verse 37. If we take these words of Jesus when he says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then we could apply our best estimate based on present population to be around 7 billion people at the time of the flood. But it's still quite possible that there were more. And so the numbers, you see, and I mentioned all this because I want want you to realize that the numbers are mind-boggling, but they're not improbable or even impossible. And this is, this is something that we have to understand as we're getting into chapter 6. Because you see, when we started studying the book of Genesis, we were, we were looking very carefully at the six days of creation. And what we discovered from the scriptures is that those six days were 24-hour days. Now that goes against all convention when it comes to evolution and when it comes to all of the things that people are being taught today about billions and billions of years, uh, you know, that uh, this world has been in existence or at least millions of years. But we trust that God is faithful to his, to his own word, and, and if he said that he created the world in six days, then he did. Six 24-hour days. I believe that. And there's a lot of proof, actually, not only in the scriptures, but also in science, to say there is a young earth here, a lot younger than people say. So this is the reason why we're taking the time to go through these issues in the scriptures. And so now as we close our look at uh, Genesis chapter 5, we were introduced to a person named Noah, of which the last part of the chapter states this. And let me read verses 28 to 32 of Genesis 5. And Lamech lived 108, uh, 180 and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now just for purposes of review, the name of Noah's father, Lamech, had been given to another person much earlier, Back in chapter 4, we read of Lamech in the line of Cain. Cain being the sixth generation from Adam. Or Lamech being the sixth generation from Adam, the father of Cain. There is a radical difference between these two men, between these two Lamechs. Seth's Lamech, the Lamech from the line of Seth, fathered a son and Noah who walked with God. We know that from our study of the scriptures. Noah walked with God and was used by God to save the human race and continue the messianic promise. Now, Cain's Lamech was a murderer and and one who boasted of his deeds. He boasted of his murders and and, and probably boasted as well of his polygamous tendencies. For he's the first one that we see that married multiple wives. Now, why are these things important to mention? 
Because you see, the world had grown so wicked since the fall of man, and both lines, the ungodly line of Cain, which we studied in chapter 4, and the godly line of Seth, which we studied in chapter 5, had equally been affected by the rampant and destructive nature of sin. Both lines affected by sin. All indeed had fallen short of God's glory. All indeed had fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. Confirming, in fact, for us, the very teaching of the Apostle Paul from his very own study of the Hebrew Scriptures and as he begins to uh, give us forth his wisdom in Romans chapter 3, He quotes from the Old Testament and he says, as it is written in verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher or an open grave. Uh, With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he closes this particular statement in verse 23 when he says, For all have sinned. The conclusion. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Seth's Lamech, the Lamech that was in the line, the godly line of Seth, concerned for mankind's need for comfort and rest in the midst of a wicked and a perverted world. He named his son Noah, which means comfort and rest, in hopes that his son would be used by God to bring what the world desperately needed. Now providentially, it was the Lord who in his sovereign will provides Lamech's son with such a hopeful name. And as we enter into chapter 6, we actually see the great need. The great need of man. Let's begin by looking at the first two verses of Genesis chapter 6. By the way, I'm reading from the King James Version, and I, I mention that because this year is the 400th anniversary of the King James Version. I figure any Bible that's been around for 400 years is, and still around is pretty good to use, so that's why we use it. Oh, I use it. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, which means attractive, by the way. And they took them wives of all which they chose. We're going to spend our time on these two verses because there's a, there's a tremendous need for us to understand the makeup of these two verses, which is actually one sentence. I'll say that in just a moment again. But I want to mention just a couple of things before we press on into our study. First of all, understanding this chapter, chapter 6, understanding this chapter is foundational to understanding most, if not all, of the Old Testament, as well as understanding most, if not all, of Bible prophecy. So let me say that our study of chapter 6 is going to affect our understanding, actually, of future prophetic events as well. And we'll see that as we get into chapter 6. Secondly, because of this, we need to examine and investigate all of the biblical facts without inserting any preconceived notions 
and remembering two significant verses of Scripture to help us in that. The first Scripture is Proverbs 18, verse 13. Because it says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame unto him. I mean, let's let's put aside any preconceived notion. You know, we all came, most of us came out of many different uh, religious backgrounds. We may have heard this in, uh, teaching of these particular uh, passages here in chapter 6, and, and we were told one thing or another. You may hear some of the things that I'm going to bring up about other view, viewpoints. Let's put everything aside and let the, the Word of God substantiate itself. Let, let's let the Word of God, you know, show us what... what uh, uh, what we're needing to learn from this. The second passage that I want you to remember is Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now Luke, in writing the, the book of Acts, is talking here about uh, Paul, the apostle, going to uh, from the city of Thessalonica to the city of Berea, and they're meeting with the church in Berea. And as he is teaching the word of God, uh, he recognizes that these Bereans are somewhat different than the Thessalonians in receiving the word. Because he says these, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. Whether those things were so. They searched the scriptures. In other words, they didn't just take Paul's word But they searched the scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. I'm saying to you, do the same thing with me. Because these are so important, these these verses of scripture, that I'm not just going to throw out something to you and say, well, you know, just believe it because I tell you. A lot of people believe in things in the Bible today just because somebody tells them that, but they're not examining. We need to examine. That's why it took us a year just to get through five verses or, or five chapters of Genesis. At the same time, we're not forgetting the need that we have spiritually to grow in Christ and to know what Christ has told us in his word about ourselves and how we are to live our lives until the day of Christ. So you're not, we're not going to be missing any of that. So don't answer a matter until you've examined things and then search the scriptures. That's all I ask. Now, we need to take note that the first two verses of this chapter, what I just read a little while ago, are in actuality a single sentence designed to introduce us to the whole of the situation being described. This passage, and let me read it to you one more time. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, This passage is an apparently straightforward statement. But it can actually be confusing because the subject of the sentence might be referring to either of two things. By the way, the subject of the sentence is the phrase, the sons of God. And it might be referring to either of two things. And let me me pose this as a question. Are the sons of God meant to be the descendants of of the godly line of Seth? Or do the sons of God refer to angels? Don't answer the question yet. Just think about the question. Are the sons of God meant to be the descendants of the godly line of Seth? I ask that because there is a a very popular viewpoint here in chapter 6 that uh, when it mentions men here, you know, it's talking about uh, the, the godly line of Seth, uh, looking unto the daughters of Cain, and that's more specific. Here it says daughters of men. 
but um, they'll, they'll add that idea that, uh, well, the, the, God, the, the sons of Seth are looking at the daughters of Cain, and therefore, you know, this is the reason why we have the flood later, okay? So here, here's the thing. Are the sons of God meant to be the descendants of the godly line of Seth, or do the sons of God refer to angels? Now, there is a third viewpoint. The third viewpoint, and we're not going to deal with because uh, it says in that uh, these uh, sons of God were actually kings that wanted women for their harem, you know, and that's, I don't know where they got that from, but, you know, we won't even tackle with that one. We have enough for this first subject itself. So let's try to clear the air very quickly here by saying, uh, and I want you to look at verses 1 and 2. But I want, you to, I want to clear the air by quickly saying that the men that are referred to in verse 1, do you see the word men there in verse 1? It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. The men referred to in verse 1 are just men in general. They're just men in general. And the daughters mentioned in verses 1 and 2 are just daughters of men. There's no designations to them. It just says, you know, uh, it came to pass when, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Guess what? Men were multiplied on the face of the earth. And who were they giving birth to? They were giving birth to sons and daughters. Time and time again, we see this in the genealogies that we've read already. One person would be mentioned. Let's, let's, let's take, for example, Lamech. You know, it says Lamech gave birth to a son, Noah. And then later on, at a certain age, he gave, son, he gave birth to sons and daughters. The same was said of Cain. They gave birth to sons and daughters too. So this is general. It's just a very general statement. And, and the same with the daughters of men. Daughters of men would actually be translated daughters of Adam. You know, in other words, it's not so much one line or the other. It all goes back to Adam. Adam was their father initially. Therefore, everybody was related. So now here's the question that we have to deal with, or at least the situation. Both the lines of Cain and of Seth had to have had daughters. Both lines had to have had daughters. So this is written generally speaking. But the problem arises when people try to apply designations to the men and the daughters mentioned. That's what happens when you split verses 1 and 2 and not see it as a whole. So one very popular view and I've mentioned this already, is hell that, say, that says the sons of God were those from the line of Seth and the daughters of men were from the line of Cain. And what is being described in verse 1 and 2 is intermarriages between the godly and the ungodly, something that the Lord would specifically prohibit later in the law. Now I want you to see that in the law because this came many, 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 many years later. But if you'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, because we want to cover every base here today. We want to cover every base. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, lets us know that there was a time that there was going to be a separation that God wanted to make about certain things. And here in verses 1 through 4, it says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. You see, God is using the Israelites to go in and judge these nations. So 
uh, it says, Neither shalt thou make, uh, thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter, thou, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Now, that particular statement is made to the Israelites, to the people of God. And that's the law that came many, many, many years after this passage that we're looking at today in Genesis 6. So, this leaves us with some unanswered questions. It leaves us with some unanswered questions. Here's the first question, very important question. Listen carefully. Why did this make God angry enough? And I'm talking about Genesis 6. Why did this make God angry enough to want to wipe out almost all the earth's population? Why? Was there something unnatural about the offspring of these unions? In fact, sinners intermarrying with sinners just produces more sinners. Right? The the Sethites were sinners. The Canaanites were sinners. If they intermarried, they just made more sinners. But they were naturally human. You all understand that, right? No question there. It brings to mind something that Paul teaches later on in, in, uh, you know, from these times uh, in the New Testament to the church, to the church. And he, and he says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now, the, the, uh, the weight of the statement that, that uh, Paul is making is believers do not need to have these relations with unbelievers because, in fact, the unbelievers will draw you away from what you believe. Is this not what God said in Deuteronomy to his own people? Not to make covenant with those nations around them. They'll draw you away from it which in fact happened to the Israelites, which is why God had to continue to judge his own people because of their disobedience. Paul talks about the marriage of an unbeliever with a believer in, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and, and we don't see that anyone is judged there for that. Paul never says, take your children out and stone them or whatever. We don't see that, do we? All right, so... If this were all the case now, if this were the case that God is going to destroy the whole world because the Sethites uh, marry the Canaanite uh, or the Canaanite women and all, if this were the case that God was angry enough to wipe out almost all of the earth's population because of this, guess what? We'd better get out our flotation devices right now. Don't you think? Because if he's going to judge that, he's going to have to, you know, we're going to see a lot of water. But we don't see that, do we? Here's a question that needs to be asked. 
If the text was intended to contrast the, the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain, why didn't it say so? God's not out to confuse us. Why didn't it just say so? Seth was not God. Cain was not Adam. Why not the sons of Cain and the daughters of Seth? Why not that kind of distinction? And then, why is there no mention of the daughters of God and just the mention of the sons of God? Why that? Well, let's go back now. Let's go back to considering something I mentioned earlier, that angels were being referred to here. Because that's another view of the sons of God. And the term the sons of God in the Hebrew is B'nai Elohim, or more specifically B'nai Elohim, which refers to angels, by the way, three times in Scripture. Now next week, and, and by the way, I'm going to be throwing a lot of bones out at you. I think I mentioned this earlier. I'm going to throw some bones at you. We're going to put a lot of meat on those bones next week and the week following, okay? So uh, this is all just to get you to come back next week, okay? But uh, this, is, this is one of those bones. I'm going to talk a little bit about the rabbinic, the, the rabbinic uh, uh, scholars, uh, the older rabbinic scholars, who also considered the fact that the sons of God were angels. So... The term the sons of God refers to angels three times in Scripture. Never, never, never is it used for believers, at least in the Old Testament. Never used for believers. I'd like for you to turn to Job, chapter 1, because we're going to see the three all in the book of Job. Job, chapter 1, Job, chapter 2, and Job, 38. And if you're familiar with the the book of Job, you realize that... uh, uh, The enemy, uh, Satan, has gone before God to complain about the way God takes care of Job, because Job was a righteous man. But notice in verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. It would seem that these are not just people. There's kind of meeting takes place and Satan is able to come among them because remember Satan is a fallen angel he's a created being but he's an angel if you go one more page to Job 2 verse 1 we see that statement again again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord so once again sons of God have gathered together and Satan comes along with them In Job 38, verse 7, all the way near the end of this book, it speaks of the morning stars singing together and all the sons of God shouting for joy. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this is not dealing with people. It's it's certainly dealing with with angelic beings. And the rabbis, uh, uh, the earlier rabbis, uh, believe this also. One other thing that happened was that the that the translators of the Septuagint, or I should say the translators of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, that translation being called the Septuagint, uh, these men also, when they translated the phrase sons of God here, put the word for angels in the Greek. 
So they believed that these were also referring to angels. The Septuagint was, was, was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was used in all of the Gospels. And it was used also by, um, by the apostles Paul and, and others. Quoting from the Septuagint. So they re- considered the Septuagint a reliable translation of the Old Testament. Therefore we can say that the sons of God or the sons of Elohim... B'nai Elohim, this biblical term, is the sons of God of the Creator Himself. Is confined to the direct creation by the divine hand and not to those born to those of their own order. What I mean by that is this. The angels were created by God Himself. The angels were created by God Himself. They were created by God to serve Him. And so no, you know, there was no uh, procreation as, as far as we know with humans and all, of course. But God created them. Now a third of the angels did fall and followed after Lucifer. But they were still angels. Now we refer to them as demons. And Lucifer as Satan, the devil. So, but understand, as angels, they were created by God himself. Now, interestingly enough, to substantiate that, we need to look at the fact that there is one person on the earth that is called the Son of God, notwithstanding the only begotten Son of God. So we're not talking about Jesus here, but one man, only one man. You know who that is? Only one man created by the hand of God. Who was it? Adam. Luke 3.38, when we see the, 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 um, the genealogy actually backwards now in the, in the Gospel of Luke, going all the way from Jesus back to whom? Well, the last verse there is verse 38, which was the son of Enosh, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam, the son of God. Why is he called that? And he alone can have that distinction because he alone was created by the hands of God. He alone was created as God took a lump of clay and made man and formed man. And God breathed life into this man. He alone can be called the Son of God in the Old Testament. And then it is substantiated here in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. But what's interesting now is that when you go into the New Testament, that there is a designation there for the sons of God again. But this time, who are the sons of God? Totally different than the sons of God in the Old Testament. You see, the entire biblical drama deals with a tragedy that humankind is a fallen race with Adam's initial immortality forfeited. Adam was told, do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. You're going to begin to die. You're going to die spiritually immediately, but you're going to die eventually uh, physically. And that happened. So Christ uniquely then gives those that we see mentioned in in the New Testament, gives them that receive him, the power to become the sons of God. So that when we read John chapter 1 verse 12, the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12, 
After we are told that he came unto his own, Jesus came unto the Jewish people. He came unto his own, but his own did not, uh, received him not. The next verse says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That would include daughters too, by the way. The sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, who were not born, if you go on, who were not born of the flesh or the or, or blood or the will of man, but born of God. Born of the Spirit of God, born of the will of God. This is the reason for that discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. Where Jesus tells him about being born again. And Nicodemus says, born again? What do you mean? I mean, do we have to go back into our mother's womb? This is now a spiritual birth. In essence, we are all dead. This is what Paul tells us when, when, when we read Ephesians chapter 2. And chapter, or I should say chapter 4. You know, that, that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alive physically, but we're dead spiritually. But we come alive because of the life that God himself gives us. God saves us, gives us a new heart, a new life. He gives us his spirit. He regenerates us. We're new creatures in Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's what's happening here. Being born again of the spirit of God, a person is an entirely new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're the sons of God. We're only the sons of God because he has given us life. And folks, at our resurrection, the resurrection of the believer, we alone will be clothed with a building of God. And this is important as we'll, we'll transition back to Genesis. But turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. Because in Genesis, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Paul is de- dealing with this issue of an earthly house and a spiritual house. Of an earthly habitation and a spiritual habitation. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, speaking of your body and mine, if we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. That's our spiritual habitation. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. What a promise we have been given that when we are brought into that resurrection, and, and, and whether it be through the resurrection or through the rapture of the church, but either way, we're going to have a building from God. A building of God, each and every one of us. And then add this to that thought, that in every respect, we'll be equal to the angels. Equal to the angels. And that would be, of course, equal to the remaining angels, not the fallen angels, but the good angels. The good guys, the ones that wear the white hat. Or is that the white halo? I don't know. Well, you know, We only see pictures of them, but they're spirit beings, but whatever. We're, in every respect, we will be equal to them. And it is Jesus himself who tells us that. In Luke 20, verse 36. 
speaking of believers in Christ, he says, Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. What tremendous blessings we have being the sons of God, being the children of God, being the sons and the daughters of God because of Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to know Christ. And folks, let me, let me, let me carry something on further here because there's a term. The term is oikaterion. It's a, a Greek word. And we just read it in, in just a moment. I'll take you back there. If you're still in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll get back to that word in a moment. But, but the term oikaterion, alluding to the heavenly body with which every believer longs to be clothed, it is the precise term used for the heavenly bodies from which the fallen angels had disrobed. They took off their oikaterion. We're wanting to put it on. It is that body in which we can enter into heaven. These bodies won't get, it, won't get us there. But the oikaterion will. And it's interesting that it's used for the angels as well. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 2, I read it. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house. The word house is oikaterion, which is from heaven. But now I want you to notice this. If you go to Jude verse 6, Jude is that little one chapter book right before Revelation. So it's the next to the last book of the, of, of the Bible. And by the way, here's another bone that's going to be thrown out at you because we're coming back to this next time. But in Jude 6, it says, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own oikaterion, their own habitation, they left it. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. God is going to judge every fallen angel for having taken off and disrobed from the habitation or the oikaterion, the house that he had given them, that they could have, in fact, presence with God. They lost it and they left it. There's a bone. We're going to put meat on it next time. This is very important for understanding the sons of God. Now, there's another issue that we need to deal with. It is the issue of what is called the inferred lines of separation. Now, on purpose, when we were studying chapters 4 and chapter 5, I said there is an ungodly line of Cain, there is a godly line of Seth. But I didn't fail to mention that in both lines, they were all sinners. Now, there's an inferred line here. And I know that in mentioning earlier in our study of Genesis 5 that the godly line of Seth was distinct from the godly line of Cain in that it was the line from which the Messiah would come. But it did not mean that all born into that line were born without sin or blame. But the line was distinct because the Messiah is to come through man. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, he is the seed of the woman. So we had to carry from Adam, through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, all the way through David, 
and others until we get to Jesus. That is a very distinct line and necessary for us to understand. So, in fact, it was made clear that all, even in the line of Seth, even in the line of Seth, by the way, if we even took the life of David, David was a sinner. And yet Jesus still came, didn't he? Y'all understand that, right? Okay, so the point is, it, it was made clear that all, even in the line of Seth, while it was a godly line by God's direction and sovereignty, they were still sinners. And Genesis chapter 6 is the chapter that confirms that. So the concept of separate lines. And there are some people today, you know, very legalistic, you know, well, there's this line and there's that line. We are to follow just this line of Christ. We can't go, we can't cross this line. We can't do this. We can't do that. You know, this, this concept of separate lines is, in fact, contrary to the Word of God. It is contrary to the Word of God. And let me just give you a quick verse on that. And that's going to Genesis 11, verse 6. Genesis 11, verse 6, this is the time of the, the people getting together to build the tower or Babel and all of that. And, and notice what God says. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. It says the people is one. There are no separate lines here. They're all sinners. In this room today, there are sinners. We're all sinners. But there is a distinction Some of us sinners have believed on Jesus Christ. And we know where our sins are now. So there is a distinction, but we're still sinners. And we're sinning with each other. And we and and we we're burdened with with the burdens of of each and every person here. And, 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 you know, we we encourage uh, everyone. We 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 don't look for distinction lines other than the fact that we need to walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. But we're still sinners. So, there is no suggestion then that the lines of Seth and Cain kept themselves separate, nor were even instructed to. I want you to remember something. Everybody in the line of Cain and everybody in the line of Seth, together they were all still related. Because they all came from Adam. And there were no, nobody, never did God say, don't walk over into the, into the cities of Cain. We didn't see that. The Sethites had their own problems. They were sinners too. So, the instruction then to remain separate was given later, as we read in, in the book of Deuteronomy. But in Genesis 6, verse 12, going back to Genesis 6, let's go forward a little bit to verse 12. It confirms that all flesh, notice, all flesh, had corrupted God's way upon earth. All flesh. What does that include? The line of Cain and the line of Seth. Genesis 6, verse 12. God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So now, getting back to the sons of God being the angels, let's look at verse 2. And now let's look at, you know, we're going to begin to look at distinctions because of time we're, we're, we're just not going to go into great detail until next week. So here's another bone. It's out there, but we're going to put meat on it next week. Ready? Verse 2. That the sons of God saw. The daughters of men. That they were attractive fair 
And they took them wives. They took them wives. I'm, I'm trying to be dramatic here to show you the extent of what this means. They took them wives of all which they chose. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive. Now, it appears that the women had little to say about the matter. Right? But this domineering implication suggests a rather ungodly approach to the union. Even the mention that they saw that they were attractive seems out of place if only normal biology was involved. If it was only normal biology involved, then what does that say? In other words, were the daughters of Seth so unattractive? Can you imagine all the Seth men, the, the Sethite men? They're looking at the going, let's look over here to the daughters of Cain. <laughs> because there are these daughters of Seth that are really unattractive. Let's look at the daughters of Cain. Whoa. They had enough daughters to look at. Are you sensing something here? A question arises, and it's an important question now. Why did God send the judgment of the flood in the days of Noah? If it all had to do with guys that were just looking at the women on the other side of the street, was that it? As I said before, if that were the case, we better have our flotation devices on now. Verses 4 and 5 tell us something. Now, verse 3, we'll come back next week. That's another bone. All right. Verses 4 and 5. There were giants in the earth in those days. The word for giants here is Nephilim. Simply, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. Interesting. Fallen ones. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men... And they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw that the wickedness of man was great. Now, now the, the, those who hold to the, Seth, uh, the Sethite uh, and the daughters of Cain uh, position well, say, so you see, it's talking about the wickedness of man. Well, that's another bone we're going to put some meat on next week as well. But God was destroying the world because of something that was unnatural. Because let me, let me pose it this way to you. Do parents of differing religious views produce unnatural offspring? I mean, let's face it, with all due respect, by the way, to anyone here named Rosemary, I mean, are we creating Rosemary's baby here? Do parents of differing religious views produce unnatural offspring? If a Jewish man marries a Christian woman and they have a child, when they look into the basket, they see a child. We all understand that. Either a beautiful girl or a handsome little boy. 
As someone once said, believers marrying unbelievers may produce monsters. Uh, what I mean by that, of course, is, and what they mean by that is, is uh, you know, all of us, you know, have family members, uh, you know, maybe cousins, sisters, aunts, uncles, they have children, and their children come over to your house, and they all of a sudden they're just climbing over everything, and they're doing everything, and they said, that little kid's a monster. I'm pretty sure you all have never said that yourself, right? <laughs> or maybe they've said it of your own kids. I don't know, you know. There's a monster right there. All right, with that in mind, believers married and unbelievers may produce monsters, but hardly superhuman or unnatural children. And that's the point. Did God destroy the world? And nearly every human on it? Because of natural offspring? Who still had the opportunity to know the grace of God? Something's not right here. But that's the biggest bone I'm going to throw out to you today. That's where the meat's going to come on it next week. So we're going to pick up here next time. But I want you to remember something. Let's remember it was something abnormal. It was something unnatural in procreation because that is the context of what we're reading here. It was something abnormal and unnatural in procreation that resulted as the principal reason for the flood. And one more thing to add to that before we close. Satan, from the very beginning... When he was told, as the serpent in the garden, when he was told that Jesus was going to come, the seed of the woman was going to come and crush his head, he's been doing everything he can to abort that mission. But Jesus came. And Jesus died. And when he died, he for all eternity crushed the head of the serpent. And we have the benefit of that if we believe that Jesus Christ died for us, took our sins upon himself on the cross, shed his blood for our forgiveness, paid the price for us, was buried and on the third day rose again from the dead to show his power over sin and death for us. His power over the enemy. His power to give eternal life. I hope you have eternal life. And one other thing that I want to let you know I'm hoping for in you. I hope you know Jesus Christ. I hope you know him. He's my Lord. And I want you to know him. Now, very quickly, the only way that people can be saved from God's wrath is through God's grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest, anyone should, lest any man should boast. The only way that we can be saved from God's wrath is through God's grace. But let me also add this to close. God's, uh, the grace, grace isn't God's reward for a good life. Please understand that. 
Grace is not God's reward for a good life. It is God's response to saving faith. And I close with the, the example of Noah in, in Hebrews 11, verse 7, where it says, But faith, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Became an heir of righteousness just like we became heirs of righteousness when we came to Jesus Christ. Because it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that he has saved us. If you don't know that salvation today, I would encourage you to call upon the Lord. Because the Bible says that it's only in the name of Jesus Christ that a person can be saved. To believe, to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. Amen? All right, let's pray.